A moment's prayer before the sermon. Let us all pray. May the words that I speak now, the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience, be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When some of the first Christian churches were built, or even as late as the 10th, 11th, 12th century and churches were being built, the builders of Christian churches occasionally came across statues from classical antiquity. And they wanted some statues of saints in their churches, so they borrowed the classical statue of a god or a goddess and they gave it a new name, and they placed it in their church. Are you shocked? When you now discover that this statue, which has been seen to represent a saint for so many centuries now, actually began life as a statue of a pagan goddess that was worshipped as such, should we keep it or get rid of it? When you came to church at Christmas time and saw a Christmas tree standing in the corner there, did you think that that was a pagan symbol that came from pagan worship? And if you know that, should we keep it or get rid of it? And when you think that the dates of the Christmas festival and the Easter festival have been borrowed again from older pagan worship, and turned into Christian festivals, are you bothered? Well, let me say straight away that there's no need to be bothered by any of those things. What matters is how we use things now and the way we relate to God through them and the way we accept gifts that people from all sorts of faith and none have used to explore the meaning of life and to explore God as they have understood God, all those things can become things through which we start to see God ourselves. But you do have to have some sort of integrity when you're dealing with these things. You have to be honest about what you're doing. And there have been times when, of course, things can go off the rails. Sometimes you can go into churches in England and you will see places where there have been statues but the statues no longer have heads on them. And that is because the Puritans, the great reformers, did not like images of things in churches. They thought everything should be about the word of God not visual things. And so they knocked the heads off the statues of the saints because they were worried that Catholics were worshipping the saints rather than worshipping God with the help of the saints. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul was addressing versions of those sort of problems. He's got a particular version of that problem to deal with 
which was a problem of ancient society. The early Christians in places like Corinth, where Paul was writing to, were a very, very tiny minority. The Jewish communities in those cities were tiny minorities. The Christians were even smaller. The majority of people worshipped other gods of all sorts. There were temples all over the place. And all those temples depended upon animal sacrifice as the basis of their worship. Animal sacrifices and prayer relating to them. And what did they do with the animals once they had been slaughtered and sacrificed? The priests took some of the food for their own food. The rest went to the butchers and the meat market. And apart from people keeping the odd chicken in their backyard, there was no other meat except what came from the butchers and that 99% certainly had been sacrificed on the altar of a pagan temple and dedicated to a pagan god. So the early Christians were saying, does that make it all right for us to eat that meat or not? If we're eating the meat, are we actually worshipping some god other than our god, the god we know to be the true god? If we eat the meat, are we somehow colluding in pagan worship? And St. Paul is robust, as only Paul could be. You can see the steam coming off the pen as he writes. He says, effectively, don't be silly. There is only one God, and that's the God we worship. These things that the animals have been sacrificed to are not the real God. They are idols. Therefore, they don't exist as gods. Therefore, the fact that someone has dedicated them to one of those gods doesn't make a blind bit of difference. Of course you can eat the meat. Don't worry, he says. But then he goes on. The robust Paul gets changed into the pastoral Paul. He says, but there may be some people among you who have scruples about this sort of thing, whose faith is weak, who find this very difficult, who find that if they've only just started to become Christian, they don't want to get sucked back into old ways of believing and behaving. And they're frightened that actually eating meat that may have been dedicated on a pagan altar might suck them back. And he says, although they don't need to think like that, if they do think like that, don't push them too hard. Don't make their life too... If it's, this is a stumbling block for them, 
Be sensitive. Don't act yourself as if there was any truth in this idea that you're worshipping a pagan god if you eat meat that comes from the butchers, that comes from a pagan temple. Don't act as if that was true yourself if you're strong in your faith. But don't go around talking about this so stridently and telling other Christians who will be weak and young in the faith that they're stupid. Don't put them off that way. Be sensitive, says Paul. And although we don't have Paul's issue, the claim and the suggestion that we be sensitive is as important now as it was then. I suppose you could think of some thought experiments where something like Paul's situation might happen. What would happen if we'd not managed to get bread and wine for our communion service this morning and we'd popped off to a Hindu temple or a Muslim mosque and borrowed food that they had to use here? Would that affect the way you thought about the communion service? Well, I hope it will make you stop and think There wouldn't actually be anything to worry about. But some people might find that very difficult, so except in a real emergency, I don't think I would do it. Because it might cause some people problems. That would be exactly the sort of thing Paul was talking about. At the depth of what Paul is talking about, he's actually saying... Be sensitive to other people, but also have some integrity and understanding yourself. And that, I suppose, is anything does, is what takes us to the gospel reading that we heard today. Jesus comes into the synagogue in Capernaum. And people are astonished by him. This is early in his ministry. We're in, still in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. Early in his ministry, he comes to the synagogue and he doesn't just pray and worship there. He starts to teach. He's not got a certificate to prove he's a professional rabbi or teacher. He just talks about the word of God and what God is saying through it. And the people are astonished. Compared with those who are educated and trained at this sort of thing, he seems different. He speaks, as the gospel puts it, and teaches with authority. That's a really interesting word in Greek. The Greek word means he speaks out of the core of his being. He speaks with total integrity and it shows. He's not just mouthing words or saying opinions. He's saying something which is actually deep in the heart of his being. 
who he is and what he does is completely at one with what he says. He speaks with that sort of integrity and that grabs people's attention. It has an effect on people. When I was uh, training for the ministry myself, I was put to work with a minister who had a great effect on me and had done because I'd known him as a minister when I was an undergraduate before I even thought of training for the ministry myself. He never held any high office, but may have affected more people in his time than almost any other minister I know. And working with him, I was constantly struck by the power of his preaching, which came not because he shouted a great deal, although he could on occasion, but because he preached with integrity. His name was Whitfield Foy, so Robert knows who I'm talking about. (laughs) Whitfield Foy, every Monday, sometimes on Sunday night, would open his Bible and look at the readings for the coming Sunday. And then every day during the week, he would read his newspapers, because it was all newspapers those days, and he would circle stories that caught his attention. And each day he would look at the stories and look at the day's newspapers and he would look at the Bible passages And somewhere towards the end of the week, sometimes Saturday, he used to say, if we were lucky, he once said to me, sometimes the best sermons are the ones I'm still writing as I walk up the pulpit steps. Every week, he would go into his study with the Bible passages in his notes and the stories from the news, and somehow something would come out of them as he wrestled with them. And he never told you anything that he didn't wrestle with himself. And he once said to me, as a preacher, you only have a right to say something which is critical or cutting if you have obviously been cut by that word yourself. And he came across to congregation after congregation as somebody who was with them and on their side, who was struggling to hear what God was saying alongside them. And maybe the way he struggled helped them. He preached with authority and with integrity. And his life was totally at one with what he taught. He had a career of spotting where the problem areas were going to be. So, in his ministry, at one point, he was sent as a missionary to what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, to its capital city, then known as Salisbury, now known as Harare. He went to an all-white congregation. The first thing he and his wife did was as they were introduced by the circuit steward to the servants, all black, 
in their house and they were told by the white circuit stewards not to let the servants have the keys. The first thing they did was put the keys on the table in the entrance hall and say to the servants, when you need to get through a door, pick up the key and use it. The second thing they did was start behaving like that inside the church and preaching the gospel of in Christ. There is no male or female, Greek or Jew, black or white. And people began to leave the church. But 18 months later, they had come back and other people had come as well. They lived what they preached with total authority and integrity. Jesus goes into the synagogue and has that sort of integrity and authority about him. And in the congregation, there is someone who is in real, real personal trouble. We do not know what is messing him about and oppressing him, but in first century language they say he's in the grip of unclean spirits. There are forces beyond him which are twisting him up and making a mess of his life. He is trapped. He is oppressed. And this person sees Jesus and he becomes even more disturbed when he encounters Jesus. And he shouts out, What have you got to do with us, Jesus? Why have you come here? Leave us alone, he means. We don't want to be disturbed. Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus just looks at him and says, be quiet. And he releases the man somehow from everything which has been messing him about. The man was frightened of changing. The man was worried about taking a step forward. I wonder how many times we have felt disturbed by God coming close to us. I wonder how many times we have felt worried and afraid of letting ourselves be loved by another human being and even more afraid of letting ourselves be loved by God. Because if you allow yourself to be touched by the love of God, then you're not going to be the same. Life is going to change. You are going to change. And I don't know about you, but I quite like the quiet life. I've got used to the way I am with all my faults and all the difference and the things that I like to moan about. But if you took away the things that I like to moan about, I sometimes wonder whether I'd be happy. But actually when God's grace and love touches you, suddenly we're freed to become the sort of people God wants us to be. 
And that can be pretty scary. Because I know what I'm like now. What I don't know is what God wants me to be like. I can only find out by letting God love me. By letting Jesus come close. By letting the Spirit move in my life. And the other people look around and they see that Jesus has been able to do what they can't. He has allowed this deeply oppressed, troubled man to become calm and to step forward into a new life. What is this, they say to each other? He's not just teaching things. He's doing what he teaches. A new teaching with authority. And his fame began to spread. Jesus tried to stop people gossiping about him as a miracle worker or a great teacher. What he wanted was people to come and encounter him and meet him and see that integrity in him. And Jesus is alive again today. And as we gather around the table later in this service, he will be here. And we can encounter him. And his love can touch us. And it will change us. And we might be slightly worried about that. But don't be. It's for you. And he is kind. And he has integrity and authority and the power of love. Amen.